Okay, hello everybody. Today is Wednesday, and on Wednesdays this year, I've been doing a regular segment about the New Orleans Axeman, an unidentified serial killer who operated in Louisiana in the early part of the 20th century. And I would like to just drop a couple of reminders that every Friday on this show is an Anything Goes or any subject is fair game, talking about anything under the sun or in the darkness. And of course, every Monday is Zodiac Mondays, talking about the Zodiac Killer Mystery. And as you'll see from the title here, this is part two. But if you haven't heard part one yet, that's fine. You can keep listening. I always want these multi-part discussions to be made available to people if they're jumping in the middle or if they're starting from the beginning and listening to it in the playlist or just from time to time tuning into BBO War. But I do hope you'll listen to the series in its entirety. Last week on the Wednesday show, I went through... Robert Talon's Ready to Hang, Seven Famous New Orleans Murders. And he has a chapter devoted to the New Orleans Axeman called The Axeman Wore Wings. This book is rather important because the contemporary understanding of the New Orleans Axeman comes from this book here, Ready to Hang by Robert Talon. And when I say contemporary understanding, it's something that is heavily challenged by Miriam C. Davis, author of The Axeman of New Orleans, who simply said that Robert Talon presented the most widely available story of the Axeman, but not everything was completely factual. So first I wanted to go through Robert Talon's writing on the Axeman, and then look at Miriam C. Davis's and do some comparing and contrasting, as well as looking at some other outside sources, what do people have to say. But another thing that Miriam C. Davis wants to remind us of is that there really are very few books that are devoted to the Axeman. In fact, she stated that her book, The Axeman of New Orleans, The True Story, is the only book exclusively devoted to covering the story of the Axeman, and it serves as the definitive authority for it. But last time, on the part one episode, I was talking about the first two Axeman attacks that began in 1918 in New Orleans, and we saw the attacks on the Maggios, husband and wife, as well as the attack on Louis Bessemer and Harriet Lowe. Now, Louis Bessemer and Harriet Lowe were spending the night together, but there really was some very odd behavior going on because Harriet Lowe claimed that she was the wife of Louis Bessemer, and Louis Bessemer said that she was not his wife, that his wife was in Cincinnati and she was just very ill, but he's spending the night with another woman. And it turned out that it was indeed true that Bessemer was married to the man, to the woman in Cincinnati. Therefore, it seemed like, to me anyway, that Louis Bessemer was being just a little bit more credible. But I am also quite curious if Harriet Lowe was some way, somehow, in, altered because of her injuries, or that her mental state was altered because she had been attacked by the Axeman. And I did several episodes about the New Orleans Axeman last year on this channel, and there were a lot of details involved, and I was pretty sure that Harriet Lowe was murdered, that she was the victim in the second attack that passed away, but to provide some clarity, because I misspoke last time, Harriet Lowe is attacked by the Axeman of New Orleans, and at first she is able to survive the initial attack, and she's taken to the hospital, and then later on in the hospital she passes away from her injuries, but she is conscious for a while, and she's able to give, to give a statement, and that's when she's saying things that she's married to Louis Bessemer, and she's saying a bunch of uh, things that don't quite make a whole lot of sense, and 
I mean, she's more or less dying in the hospital bed, so I really am quite wonder if she was delirious or just not completely together. But I would like to get back to the book um, Ready to Hang by Roberta Lahn on page 199. Edward Schneider, a young married man, was working late that night, and it was after midnight when he turned the key in his front door of, of his home in Elmira Street. When he reached his bedroom, he turned the light on, and he was almost paralyzed with horror. His wife lay unconscious, her face and head covered with blood. Mrs. Schneider, who was expecting a baby within a few days, was rushed to Charity Hospital. She regained consciousness and remembered awakening to see a dark form bending over her, an axe swung high. She recalled shrieking as the axe fell. She recovered a week later and the, delivered a healthy baby. She was never able to tell more about what had occurred, and although the police searched diligently for clues, none were found. The, To add the to the general confusion were deviations from the axe man's habits. No axe was about. The intruder seemed to have entered by window, and not from a panel that had been chiseled out. Okay, so um, this is important because when it comes to serial killer mysteries, I talk a lot about the Zodiac Killer, right? And I've entertained the multiple killers theory that there were, um, that there was a group of people who orchestrated the Zodiac murders. I think it's even more likely in the Jack the Ripper case that there were multiple killers, and the um, the Long Island serial killer mystery. I think it's quite possible there were multiple killers. The Phantom Killer mystery of nineteen forty six. It's possible there were multiple killers. I do not endorse the multiple killers theory in any of those true crime cases, but I'm curious about it, and I think about it. However, with um, Robert Alon's take on the Axeman subject, I think everything here is pointing toward a single perpetrator. And again, this will be something that's going to be discussed in the ongoing series. And you can always say, okay, I thought that at one time, now I've learned something new, and I, my position on this has changed. However, the way that this story is written and ready to hang, it does seem like there's a single person. He is using an axe, he is targeting victims in their homes, but a big difference is that in the first two attacks on the Maggios and Louis Bessemer and Harriet Lowe, that a panel was indeed chiseled out, and that's how someone entered in, and the axe is taken from the people who lived there, and the axe was just used as a tool, and then someone took it and used it as a weapon. But, um... I would actually like to just uh, read that one more time. And although the police searched diligently for clues, none was found. To add to the general confusion were deviations from the Axeman's habit. No axe was about. The perpetrator seemed to have entered by a window, not a door panel that was chiseled out. As usual, however, nothing was stolen. Another key detail is the Axeman had the opportunity to steal money from the victims, but he did not. I mean, entering through the window versus the panel, that doesn't strike me as rather odd. I mean, that could have just been convenience, and I don't think that that shares too much of an M.O. change. That could have just purely been out of practicality. I think what's much more important is that this person is using a uh, the same type of weapon as well as the same... Uh, more or less, pattern of behaviors attacking somebody in the home. And then you see, though, that it's just a woman present as opposed to a man and a woman, but home invader wielding an axe. And 
not exactly making sure that the victims are dead. That also seems to be something that is rather consistent with a single perpetrator. Terrible, terrible things that are happening in New Orleans, but let's continue. For the first time, a headline went out into what Orleanian, Orleanians, I always say that Orleanians, maybe I'm thinking of the French with Orleans, Orleanians, maybe in English, had been asking each other for months. The Times-Picayune asked in large and dramatic type, is an Axeman at large in New Orleans? And a key um, feature of some of the unsolved serial killer cases that I had been talking about on the channel were that with Jack the Ripper, newspapers heavily influenced the public persona of who or what Jack the Ripper was. The Zodiac Killer as well. I mean, the Zodiac Killer wrote taunting letters to newspapers that then went on to publicize info about the Zodiac Killer. The Phantom Killer of 1946. I mean, with the Phantom Killer, it's possible that the Phantom was completely created by the newspapers. Not exactly a serial killer hoax, more like a misunderstanding that there was this hooded person who committed an attack on Jimmy Hollis and Mary Jean LeRae on um, February 22nd of 1946, and he was wearing this sack over his head that was kind of like a pillowcase. And then two other couples were murdered in Texarkana over a span of maybe two months. And then there was a home invasion that seems like it was done by a different person. So a possible theory is that those were just mostly unconnected crimes and that the media just thought they were connected and they printed the story that there's this phantom killer on the loose. And I would invite everyone to listen to my episodes about the phantom killer here on this channel. And you can always like and subscribe and support these efforts by going over to buymeacoffee.com. There's a link to that in the description box. Anyone who makes a donation or contribution to help support the show will get a shout-out on Zodiac Mondays. And every, everything is greatly appreciated. But let's, let's read this question again. Is an Axeman at large in New Orleans? The media is already influencing the public perception. Even if there wasn't an Axeman at large people would think that there was because of headlines like this. Pauline Bruno, age 18, and Mary, her sister, age 13, awoke shortly after 3 in the morning on the night of August 10th when they heard strange noises coming from the next room where their uncle Joseph Romano was sleeping. Pauline crawled out of bed on and turned on her light and opened the box between the rooms. A man whom she later described as tall, dark, and heavy-set and wearing a dark suit and a black slouch hat, was there. He was standing by her uncle's bed, and Pauline screamed, and then the man seemed to vanish, as if it were all just a fantastic nightmare. Her uncle rose from the bed, staggered through a door at the other side of the room, and crashed on the floor, which was the parlor. Pauline ran after him. Later she told the story that... She told the story to an item reporter. I've been nervous about the Axeman for weeks, she said, and I haven't been sleeping much. I was dozing when I heard blows and scuffling in Uncle Joe's room. I sat up in bed and my sisters woke up too. When I looked into my uncle's room, this big heavy-set man was standing at the foot of the bed. I think he was white, but I couldn't swear to it. I screamed and my little sister screamed too. We were horribly scared. Then he vanished. It was almost as if he had wings. Hence the title of this section in Talon's book, The Axeman Wore Wings. We rushed into the parlor where my uncle had staggered. He had two big cuts to his head, and we got him propped up in, the, in a chair. I've been hit, he groaned. 
I don't know who did it. Call the charity hospital. Then he fainted. Later he was able to walk to the ambulance with some help. Romano died two days later in the hospital, without being able to make further statements. Police reported at this time that there were all of the Axeman signatures. An axe was found in the Romano's backyard, bloodstained and fearful. The panel of the rear door had been cut out, and nothing in the house had been stolen, although Romano's room seemed to have been ransacked. Well, that does make something different. The only thing that made it unlike some of the other cases is that Romano was a barber and not a grocer. So that um, deviates from a particular theory that we were discussing in part one, because there is a theory in the Axeman case that these crimes were orchestrated by the Sicilian Mafia, that the, the Axeman wasn't a cold, methodical, and calculating serial killer who's killing for pleasure. It's that he was a hitman or a henchman for the Sicilian crime rings in New Orleans, specifically tied to the grocery business. He's going after shopkeepers and grocery owners because either they're trying to extort money out of them or they're trying to take over their business, or as somebody even suggested in the comments section, putting them out of business, destroying any chance for a competition because they want to control certain business dealings. That's why the killer doesn't care about money that is left behind. That's why the killer isn't stealing anything. But I just have to point out, are you already noticing something? The Axeman is not a very good serial killer. If this is a henchman from the mafia and he's trying to murder people, he's not doing a very good job. Firstly, Louis Bessemer survived. And secondarily, even when you're reading the story about the Romano attack, that he's able to um, walk to the ambulance himself. I mean, he wasn't able to give statements, and he did pass away, the same way that Harriet Lowe passed away. But Joe Romano is um, not killed immediately, so this killer doesn't seem to be very thorough, and he doesn't seem to be someone who is making sure that the victims are dead. And that really makes you question this whole mafioso angle. I mean, it makes sense from a distance. It was just like, okay, well, there was a henchman from the mafia that was murdering people, and that the media just presented him as a serial killer, which he kind of was, but not completely. With serial killers, usually murder has to be the only objective, or the primary objective. But I think that um, you can get the idea that this um, really makes you wonder... If the Mafia had hired a hitman, couldn't they have hired a more successful hitman? Or as uh, somebody once said, even a fool would know that slitting someone's throat is going to murder them more easily than striking them or stabbing them at odd places. Now, there was a wave of hysteria among the Italians in New Orleans. Some of the families set up regular watches, taking turns standing guard over the sleeping relatives. A few were leaving the city. Police began to be flooded with reports after the Romano incident. Alderon, a grocer, reported finding an axe and a chisel outside the back of his door on the morning of August 11th. Joseph Leboeuf, a, gro a, sorry, a grocer at Gravier and Miro Streets, only a block from the Romano house, came forward with the story that someone had chiseled out a panel on the back of his door on July 28th, the day when he was not home. Still another grocer, Arthur Recknagel, told of finding a panel in one of his doors removed back in June and finding an axe in the grass. Recknagel 
lived only a half a dozen blocks from the Romano home. On August 15th, several persons called the police and to tell them that the Axeman was wandering around in the neighborhood of Tulane Avenue and Broad Street disguised as a woman. Now, this is something that you do encounter from time to time, and this might just be um, stuff that people are saying because they aren't completely sure what they have seen in a different unsolved mystery, not a murder case, but um, an unsolved mystery called The Mad Gasser of Mattoon. One theory is that women committed some of the attacks and they were wearing men's clothing, so they were um, they knew who the Axeman was and it was their brother. But they're trying to fool the witnesses with conflicting descriptions. It seems like that um, type of behavior is also found in the New Orleans Axeman case. Really interesting how these um, true crime theories get recycled from time to time. It's almost as if someone were to read a book like this and then think, um, oh yeah, well that makes sense for the Mad Gasser of Mattoon mystery. And to be very clear, uh, this book was written after the Mad Gasser of Mattoon, which um, took place in the 40s, and this one is, of course, in the 19... Uh, this book was written in 1952. Are you sensing a particular insinuation from this book, the or the uh, chapter of the Axeman or Wings? It's almost as if someone was trying to target a grocer of Italian descent, and looking for the home of someone chiseling out the panels of the doors of several of the nearby residents, and that Joe Romano may have been attacked in a case of mistaken identity. I think that's the insinuation from this. But also, I'm very skeptical of all of these things happen, that just people in the area have the panels of their door chiseled out. Some way, somehow, I'm just... That almost sounds a little bit too coincidental to be true. The New Orleans States... The New Orleans States... Again, that's a publication. I'll just read the whole thing again. The New Orleans States reported the next day that armed men are keeping watch over their sleeping families while the police are seeking to solve mysteries of the axe attacks. Five victims have fallen under the dreadful blows of this weapon within the last few months. Extra police are being put to work daily. At least four persons saw the Axeman this morning in the neighborhood of Iberville and Rondon. Rondon, excuse me. He was first seen in front of an Italian grocery. Twice he fled, and citizens armed themselves and gave chase. There was something agreed upon all in the prowler's hand. Was it an axe? I also think that that's really weird that a newspaper is asking the question, was it an axe? I don't know, news. You you guys write the news. You're supposed to be reporting on the facts, not just asking questions. Okay, so they saw somebody carrying something? I don't know. Maybe it was like a box of chocolates or something. You never know what you're going to get. Or, I mean, maybe it was indeed the axe, man. But I, I really don't like how... A newspaper, and not only a newspaper, but a contemporary one from the Times who is supposed to be reporting on these facts as it happens is just asking the readers to figure it out. Was it an axe? I mean, like with the Zodiac Killer mystery or something, it's almost as if they're just going to be asking, well, what did he do next? Well, actually, they kind of did this in um, the Jack the Ripper case, come to think, I just thought of it now. They had um, a headline that said, when will the Ripper strike next? Something to that effect. I may be paraphrasing a little bit, but like the media is not only stating that 
the uh, Ripper could attack again, but that he will attack again. And it's just going to show how the public perception can be heavily crafted by the media at the time. On August 30th, a man named Nick Asunto called the police to tell them that he had awakened and he had heard strange noises downstairs. He lived in a two-storied house, and he went to the head of the stairs and saw a heavy, dark-set man standing below, an axe in his hand. When Asunto yelled at him, the police... The Axeman ran out of the door. On August 31st, Paul Bella, a notions store proprietor at 7420 Zimple Street, found an axe in his alley. They were at a dozen similar... They were a dozen sim... <laughs> there were a dozen similar reports. Out of all the words to trip over in this book, there, T-H-E-R-E, there were a dozen similar reports. Now police made statements to the effect that they did not believe that Bessemer was a case of the ordinary variety. Well, I don't quite think so either, because, um, firstly, Louis Bessemer survives the attack, and he has these conflicting reports, and he's the one who had a trunk full of documents that were written in various European languages, and they thought he was a German spy and such, and I talked a lot about him in part one, so I won't repeat that too much. But, yes, he is, um, of course, not Italian. He was of Polish descent, so... I um, think that there are differences, but the Axeman did target him in his home, and a panel was chiseled out, So, and nothing was stolen, so there are hallmarks of the New Orleans Axeman. Joseph D'Antonio, a retired detective and long authority on mafia activities, was questioned by the state's reporter and was quoted in the newspaper, saying that the Axeman is a modern Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, a criminal type that may be a respectable law-abiding citizen in his normal life, compelled by an impulse to kill, he must obey this urge. Some years ago, there were a number of similar cases, all bearing strong resemblances to this outbreak, that the same fiend may be responsible. Like the Jack the Ripper case, this sadist may go on with his periodic outbreaks until his death. For months, even years, he may be normal, then go on another rampage. It is a mistake to blame the Mafia. Several of the attacks have been other than Italians, and the Mafia never attacks women, as this murderer has done. Well, I mean, I am not an expert on the Mafia activities, but Joseph D'Antonio states that he is. And this is someone, again, who is from the contemporary times. I really have to be very honest with you. I thought that I was going to go into this book, ready to hang, and find all types of clues that would suggest that this mafia henchman theory was correct. Because it makes sense, right? Just, okay, there's a mafia hitman that is committing these crimes, and the newspaper made everyone think that it's a cold, methodical serial killer. But when you read something like this, and just about how shabbily the crimes are committed, how sloppy the crimes are, and it almost seems like there is someone who is doing this in a maniacal way, that he is getting off on the attacks and the um, murders, and it will be something that we will explore much more in the Axeman of New Orleans, because, as Miriam C. Davis likes to point out, a very similar set of crimes took place earlier in the decade, closer to um, the beginning of the 1910s, rather, and these were known as the cleaver attacks, because first a cleaver was used, and then, for the same reason, was stolen from shops. It was a weapon that was not belonging to the killer, but was easily, or, or somewhat easily accessible. The axe turned out to be an easier weapon to obtain. Therefore, the killer went on to um, 
go on with that in her theory, but I'm really rather undecided about whether or not the Cleaver attacks were the same person. And you might be wondering, well, that's a big gap from, like, 1911 or something to 1918. Well, one uh, possibility is that the person went to jail for something else. Another possibility is that he was in World War One, or just in the military, period, and then stationed several places before perhaps going even abroad in World War One. So um, a lot of things tend to make sense, but I'm just from reading Robert Talon's work, this whole thing about how he is targeting people that aren't always Italian, that aren't always grocery store owners, but some of them are, I mean, that really is odd. And somebody brought this up in the comments section. Maybe this person was a business owner who knew these people from the grocery store trade and but he was a serial killer, not the mafia, just he didn't like these people because he had interactions with them. And other people like Joe Romano, the barber, maybe he knew him personally and these were personal targets. It's a, I suppose anything's possible in an unsolved case. Then, as if he were exactly as Detective D'Antonio had theorized, the Axeman did disappear. After the Romano killing, the other unauthenticated attacks and scares Nothing happened at all for a long time. Weeks and months passed. The fighting of World War I ended. Christmas came and then New Year's, and no more attacks. Chris, I just read that. Orleanians, even the Italians, breathed freely again, and the police, still mystified, found nothing more to work on in solving the crimes. From time to time, suspects were arrested, but all had been released. Only Bessemer had remained in jail awaiting trial, and he was the only real suspect that had any connection with the crimes. I think that's so odd because Louis Bessemer isn't only a suspect, he's also a, a victim in this. And in the um, earlier part of the book, um, I mean, I, I was just flipping through some pages before I was getting back to today's discussion, and I saw the lines about how there was the possibility that Louis Bessemer, the grocer of Polish descent, self-inflicted his injuries so he could murder Harriet Lowe because, you know, he's having an affair and... He seems like someone who is an oddball type anyway, and his uh, bizarre behavior partnered with the fact that he was indeed attacked. I mean, being weird is not a crime, let's be very clear about that. But having an affair, trying to get rid of his mistress, maybe, especially one who is saying wild stories about him, and, I mean, all of that, the fact that he has minimal injuries and she dies from her injuries. Yeah, okay, you can be somewhat skeptical of his story. But I would like to move on to an attack that occurred in 1919. Here is something that is so different than the Phantom Killer, so different than Jack the Ripper, because the, the New Orleans Axeman is going to start operating in 1918, and then the crimes are going to go on into 1919. On March, of 19, on March 10th of 1919, Orlando Giordano, a grocer in Gretna, just across the river from the New Orleans territory, heard screams coming from the living quarters of another grocer across the street, a man named Charles Cordomiglia. He rushed over into the Cordomiglia apartment. Mrs. Cordomiglia sat on the floor, still shrieking and blood gushing from her head. The body of her two-year-old daughter Mary clasped in her arms. Also bleeding frightfully, Charles Cordomiglia lay on the floor. Giordano tried to take Mary from her mother's arms, but she wouldn't let him. So he got wet towels and from the bedroom and tried to bathe her face. 
and that of her husband. Cordomiglia groaned, but he did not regain full consciousness. Then Frank Giordano, the son of Orlando, rushed in, assisting his father. The father sent him to call the ambulance. Both the Cordomiglia parents had been taken to the charity hospital with fractured skulls. Little Mary was dead. Absolutely saddening. Rest in peace. When the police searched the property, they found the similar tactics used by the axe man. The same pattern. The back door panel had been chiseled out. The bloody axe that was owned by Charles Cordomiglia was found on the back steps and nothing was stolen. Reading the newspapers the next morning, Orleanians and the citizens of Gretna all knew the worst. The axe man was back. As soon as she could talk coherently, Rosie Cordomiglia told of the awakening to see her husband with a large white man and wearing dark clothes who was armed with an axe. The man tore himself loose from Cordomiglia and sprang backward and struck once more with the axe. When her husband fell to the floor, the axe man swung around Mrs. Cordomiglia, seized Mary, who was asleep in the crib beside the parents' bed, clasped her and screamed, Not my baby, not my baby. The axeman struck twice more and fled. Mary was killed instantly. Both the Cordomiglias were badly injured, but Charles recovered first and left the hospital. A few days later, Rosie made another statement and an accusation that amazed the police. It was the Giordanos, she said. It was Frank Giordano and the old man helped him. It was these Giordanos. Charles Cordomiglia was questioned. He looked astounded as the police lease and said it was not the Giordano's. I saw the man well and he was a stranger. No, it was not Frank Giordano. And I have to throw in another interjection because, quite similar to the attack on Louis Bessemer and Harriet Lowe, Harriet Lowe, the female victim, is the one saying that um, all of these things that should, could be true, but they're not. She's the one who's saying far out stories that they're unable to verify. Now, in this case, in the Cordomiglia attack, it is Rosie Cordomiglia, the female victim, again, is saying something that she can't substantiate. And why would Charles Cordomiglia lie? I mean, his daughter was murdered, for goodness sakes. But he's saying, no, it wasn't them. I mean, is she just confused, again, because she was being attacked? Or is she dealing with the grieving of losing her child? That is something, though, that is particularly sadistic about the Axeman attacks, because with um, with the other serial killers that I've talked about, Jack the Ripper, the Phantom Killer, the Zodiac Killer, even the Long Island Serial Killer, I take it back, the first four, Jack the Ripper, the Zodiac, and the Phantom Killer, they did not target children. The Long Island Serial Killer did target one baby girl, and she is simply referred to as Baby Doe, but the... um. Zodiac, the Phantom, and the Ripper did not. And also, when you think about the Mafia connection, unless there's a specific reason, they would murder the child. I mean, that. I mean, this guy is this um, Mafia expert in this chapter is saying that the Mafia doesn't even target women. So that to jump all the way to targeting baby girls, that also seems somewhat inconsistent with the Mafioso theory and more consistent with a single sadistic serial killer. But what do you think? Is there a particular theory or idea that stands out most to you? And do you agree with the mafia angle, or do you agree with the single sadistic serial killer angle? This could even be a, one of those sexually motivated crimes where sexual activity isn't taking place. The victims aren't raped or molested. Instead, it's someone who is just getting off on being power assertive or feels some type of sexual connection to driving pain into the other victims.
What do you think? Please share your ideas in the comment section down below. Do you notice any similarities or differences among the serial killers that I've been discussing, such as Jack the Ripper and the Axeman, or the Zodiac and the Axeman, the Phantom Killer and the Axeman, the Long Island Serial Killer and the Axeman? What stands out to you about this case? Do you think, though, that the victims were chosen because of their occupation? Were they chosen because they were grocers? Or was that simply a, a coincidence? Or was this person just having some familiarity with grocers? Like, why would only grocers plus Joe Romano the barber be targeted? And why is the Axeman only chiseling out the panel sometimes, then one time going through the window? What do you think is going on with this case? And I know it's very early on, and again, Robert Talon's Ready to Hang is going to be somewhat of a controversial source. However, I'm curious what you guys think, because I'm going to, and if I'm going to be critical of that newspaper for not answering the questions themselves, I'm going to be very blunt with you. In the past, I thought that the mafia angle had a very high chance of being true in the Axeman story, but as of now, I'm beginning to doubt it based on reading this chapter. And again, I might have a reversal on that because I want to read more about the facts of the case as opposed to just what um, a writer who isn't even citing sources is saying other than the little snippets from the newspaper. There aren't in-text citations in this book or anything in that chapter. But I really, the way he presents this, it seems like there is just a single maniacal serial killer who is targeting the victims for an unknown reason, or if they, if, they're, if we have to label the unknown reason sadism, inflicting terror upon the victims, because much as the um, sci uh, psychological observer said, I mean, as the mafia expert said, that this might be someone who just goes through years of just ordinary, boring, nice guy behavior, and then his serial killer tendencies come out. I don't know if that's exactly something that all psychologists would agree with, but I can comprehend that how this could have been a single person. But what do you think? Share your ideas in the comment section down below. Anybody can write the show at blackboxonlineradio.com. You can also get me on Facebook. My personal Facebook is in the description box. And there is always blackboxnid88 on Instagram. And I will see you there for the bonus podcast. Until next time.